Okay. Let's read together. We're going to be in the New Testament book of Hebrews, which is a letter by an unknown author. Someone once suggested it was written by a woman, in which case it should be called Shebrews, but there we go. Um, Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 32. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter and then into, into 12, the first couple of verses there. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, having heard from your word, I ask you to speak into our lives and unto our hearts. Challenge us, comfort us, and shape us, Lord, into all that you want us to be. Amen. Our lives are on earth are very short and fleeting and uh, the older you get, they say it, it speeds up, doesn't it? Or time seems to speed up, I guess, because you've got you know, more to reference time by. Parents of, of newborn children are aware of every hour <laughs> and every sleepless night. And so it, it feels, or, or we can't imagine life being any different sometimes from those moments, particularly when you've got little kids, because things just go on and on. And you can't ever imagine them growing up and becoming grown-ups and adults. And so everyone who's ever had kids feels the need to remind parents, it goes so quickly, enjoy it while it is, because it will soon be gone. It's like a rite of passage that we all kind of have to do to one another. Now I find myself saying it to newborns, it goes so fast, and I still have little ones. Now, few, of us, few of us, though, live consciously aware of how brief our lives on earth are. It's, it's only really when tragedy occurs, or when we have a near-death experience, or an accident perhaps, and that we start to think about these things. We're like, we're like drunk people who pay no attention to the morning's hangover, and we tell ourselves, if we just go on drinking, the hangover will never come. Uh, perhaps we're thinking, if we drink long and hard enough, the morning will never come. Life is like that. Life is so thick and real and vivid to us. Its colors and its sounds and its smells are so apparent to us that the idea of life ever diminishing or fading away or stopping seems fanciful. 
Uh, some metals are so shiny, you can't ever imagine them losing their shininess. But they do over time with corrosion, and, and life is like that. But instead of acknowledging that or knowing what to do with that, we just we carry on popping the pills of new experiences. We set new goals for ourselves every year. Or we read new books. We do new jobs. And we tell ourselves, as long as we've got something new to look forward to, then old age is never going to take us. We're never going to die. The grave will never swallow us up, as long as there's something new to look forward to. Life doesn't seem urgent. Uh, the Spanish say mañana, don't they? Mañana, tomorrow. We'll put it off. Tom- tomorrow, mañana, mañana. We'll think about these things later. Well, this morning, uh, in reading Hebrews 11, I want us to, to sober up somewhat. Um, I think to appreciate and receive what the writer of this book was trying to tell to the church that he was writing to. So Many of us, we can't receive it because we're too drunk on life. And we think that we're going to live forever and that life just goes on and on. And so stop worrying me with people who escaped the sword or got sawn in two. As part of a kind of sobering up experience, I visited Seaford Cemetery this week, um, really just to wander and to look at the graves. It's a habit I have from time to time. Um, My wife gets worried about me. It was a strange experience. And uh, it's safe to say it was was terrifying. in a sense. As you stare at the gravestones, one after the other, and you read the epitaphs, your mind tries to, tries to comprehend what you're seeing and doesn't really believe that this would ever happen to you, and yet there is this in your soul, a kind of terror that this is also your destiny. You know, if you've seen um, Back to the Future 2, where Michael J. Fox finds his father's grave, and uh, he's just kind of messing with his mind, thinking, oh, as I was walking around the grave, gravestones and looking at the names, I half expected to come across someone with the same initials as me. Uh, and actually I found myself unable to really look at the, the tombstones that are modern because it felt too close to home. I mean, I was up for a little bit of terror, but not that much. I took some pictures to show us. Um, this is one of the first ones I came across a family of names as you enter the cemetery. Ronald James Hayworth, age 88, and his wife, Margaret, who was age 93. And also their son, who died after them. He was aged 81. And his wife, who died age 79. All of them, gone, dead, buried, gone. And then... You come to the part of the the cemetery where there's the Commonwealth War Graves. And this is where the terror really ramps up. As you see, age 18, age 22, age 32, age 17, age 35, age 17, age 17, age 19, age 21. All of them gone, dead, buried, many of them forgotten. There was one epitaph that read, Uh, J. Ellis, uh, suddenly called home, one of the best. And what it says there, what I do, thou knowest not now. Death's mystery and pain. Died in 1926. 
You notice when you look at the different epitaphs as well, the changing beliefs of our society. So many of the gravestones from 100 years ago or so would, would echo Christian sentiment. or They would put Bible verses on there. With Jesus, called home. Today, uh, at peace. In the next room, gone but not forgotten. And there was one epitaph that made a particularly big impression on me. This, this one here, age 17. Uh, next one. I don't, know, I don't think you can read that. He's age 17, died in 1917. And the verse there says, We asked life of thee, and thou gavest him life forever. An incredible perspective. They were to look at the grave and the loss of a 17-year-old. So we asked life of thee, and he, you gave it him life forever. I'm not wanting to be insensitive. I know... There are many of us in the room who are grieving, uh, and I especially am aware that this time of year is a, a painful time of year. Uh, the reality is if you're grieving, your grief's close to the surface all the time, and you're a lot more aware of these things than we are. It's just my experience that Bible verses like this, they, they just they bounce off me. Uh, they bounce off us until we sober ourselves up long enough to hear them and to engage with them and to read them. Otherwise, you see, so much of the Bible seems so extreme, seems so over the top, just seems an interruption on our fun. So Jesus said to his disciples, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it is better to enter eternity with only one hand than it is to have your whole body be thrown to hell. We hear that and we think, that's a little extreme. And no one, no one ever cut their, or certainly in Jesus' day, people hearing what he said when he said that, they didn't cut their hands off. They understood he was, what he was doing as a turn of phrase. It's similar to what the, the writer in Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders us, everything that entangles us. Throw it off and run your race, the race marked out for you. With endurance, run it. Throw everything off. Everything that would distract you and take you away from God's plan for your life and purpose for your life. Everything that would get in the way of knowing Him. Now, several years ago, I read a sermon by a man named A.W. Tozer. He was alive during the, the first half of the 20th century. And the sermon that I read was him essentially railing against the entertainment industry in his day. I guess the, the entertainment industry that was, that was new and was emerging. He said of entertainment, he said, I believe that entertainment and amusements are the work of the enemy to keep dying men from knowing they're dying and to keep enemies of God from remembering that they are enemies. I read that and thought, it's a little extreme. It's just a TV show. It's just a film. But I guess the more entertainments we now have in our lives, the more I see how so much of the Instagrams and apps and TV shows and Netflixes are there in many ways to stop us ever having to think about the fact that we're dying. You're going to die. Those graves aren't just interesting pictures of someone else's lot. In fact, we could probably take it away now. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. But we do. We avert our eyes from things that are uncomfortable. And we think, I just, 
If I could just watch another episode of something on Netflix and take my mind off things like this. If I could just forget about the fact that there's a, there's a conscience problem I've got, that I've got guilt and shame on me. If I could just get rid of that just by watching something or drinking something or smoking something or by buying something. And fantastic, we've got Christmas. What a wonderful opportunity to distract ourselves all the more from the fact that we're going to die. <laughs> and every, I mean... Maybe it is. Maybe I'm just getting old. I'm not old, obviously. I know I look at some of you and you think, you're not old. Uh, I know. But every year when we have New Year's Eve, it it kind of strikes me more and more as just being odd. We stand up and celebrate the chiming of a clock into the next year and we say sentimental nonsense to one another. Like, let's hope we have a good one. Okay, I'll do my best to make sure I don't die. Um, or I don't do anything stupid. At least one of those things is under my control. Um, I believe that entertainment and the amusements are the work of the enemy to keep dying men from knowing they're dying and to keep enemies of God from remembering that they're enemies. Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin that clings closely. It was written over 50 years ago, not the Bible, that was a few years later, um, longer, but that thing from Tozer was written over 50 years ago before much of what we take for granted. We need to, we need to hear it though because we need, all of us, we need to sober up. You're dying and if you're not a Christian, you're an enemy of God. You're not in right relationship with God. The Bible says that your sin separates you from the loving kindness and generosity of the Father. Your sin separates you from knowing his warmth and his goodness and his embrace of you. And if you won't hear that here, where else will you hear it? This is important news. Now, we will all of us be lying in the ground one day and our ashes will be scattered over high and over or somewhere else. But the word cemetery uh, actually is a word that illustrates the Christian concept to us. And it, although our epitaphs change, just the very fact that they're buried in a cemetery points to the Christian residue that's still there in our ideas about death. The word means sleeping place. And the reason it's Christian is because Christianity teaches us that at death we sleep and that we will all of us one day rise in a resurrection where we'll appear before God and we'll have to give an account for our lives. We will all of us, rich or poor, clever or stupid, you will all stand before that great throne of God one day. In the blink of an eye, you'll find yourself there. And actually, a few verses later in Hebrews, it says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Terrifying. Whereas many of us think of God as basically being like a jolly grandfather, Santa Claus, but for grown-ups. A terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We must sober up. If we thought it was terrifying to look at some of the epitaphs on tombstones, imagine how terrifying it would be to see God. I'm reading, um, I'm reading the Old Testament with my kids at the moment. We did Genesis and Exodus, the first two books of the Bible. We did most of Exodus. We got toward the end of Exodus, if you've ever read it. And it just turns into laws after laws after laws about how to live. 
And my kids were losing interest, so forgive me. But I skipped a few verses. I skipped many. I, I skipped Leviticus as well. Forgive me. It's just a book about laws, about how to kill your animals and how long your beard should be and what to do with mildew and why it's a problem. But what wasn't lost on my kids was a couple of things. One, the amount of gold in the, in the tabernacle. It's like, there's just gold everywhere. I was like, what, what do you think it looks like? They're like, gold. It's just gold everywhere. This is just amazing. Why is there so much gold? And the other thing that they were aware of was um, there's this scene where, where God says to Moses, I'm gonna, you know, my glory is going to pass before you, but if you were to see my face, you can't see my face because you'd die. Instead, I'm going to show you my back. And my, my eight-year-old was like, what? God has a back and a face? I was like, well, I said it's a metaphor um, to talk about the, the kind of glory and the holiness of God. And he's, he's going to pass before him, but he's only going to see the back of his glory and holiness because, you know, he can't see it. And my son, but he has a back, it's a face. Like, was, it's a metaphor. He's like, but I don't understand. I was like, no, no, this is why, but just let's move on. Let's get to David and Goliath or something. Let's get the kid's Bible out again. But as I was reading it with my eight-year-old and trying to talk about it, we've got the gold and we've got this confusing metaphor of you, if you look at God, you will die. And then lore after lore of just blood of animals. And I was like, what do you, what do you think's going on, son? And I said, I'll tell you what's going on. Um, God is holy and we're not. And how do you make people who aren't holy understand what holiness is? I said, this is what he's doing. He's got these people in a desert. He's just rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And they're wandering around the desert saying, I wish we were back in Egypt because we had cucumber sandwiches. And we're like, yes, but you were slaves in Egypt. But, you know, cucumber sandwiches as well. Like I granted, for me, cucumber sandwiches is slavery. I don't know why you'd go back to that. Um, but he's got these people and he's saying, I want you to grasp something about me. If there's one thing you get about me in the desert, I mean, you're going to be tempted to think I'm just this powerful big force. But I want you to understand how holy I am. You cannot even come near the mountain that I'm going to talk to Moses on. And if even an animal touches the mountain, you have to put it to death. Because I want to teach you about holiness. And so there's gold to point to my glory. And there's laws to tell you about my holiness. And then there's this strange, you can see my glory, but you can only see a tiny smidgen of it because you die. You can't handle it. And that's how he tries to sober up the people in the desert. A cemetery is a cloud of witnesses. They're witnessing to us, to the reality that we will all of us die. That after death, there comes judgment. We'll find ourselves with God, standing before God, and then it will be decided. Are we going to spend eternity with God or away from God? Are we going to go to heaven or hell? And many people, when you ask them, do you think there's a heaven? Uh, they might say, oh, yeah, I think so. Go, well, when you die, do you think you're going to go to heaven? And more often than not, they'll say, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Eternity's a long time. And we're willing to bank it on a, I think so. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> it's a long time. And so the writer writes to this church. And this church, you see, they already have quite a clear perspective on life. They, they don't suffer from the same problems that we do. Um, there's a growing opposition to the fact that they're Christians. Many of them 
uh, are aware of persecution that's starting to pop up around the Roman Empire because this new fledgling Christian movement's arrived on the scene and the empires of the world are uh, suspicious of it and trying to stamp it out. Many of the Christians that were in the church had had their properties already trashed. Some of them had been imprisoned and they'd visited friends, family members in prison for their Christian faith. They see what's coming. They haven't yet had to suffer. They've not yet shed their blood for their faith, the writer says. But they see what's coming on the horizon. And as a result of that, they're doing what many of us would do. They think, is it really worth it? Shall we keep going to church? Should we still keep meeting together? Why don't we just go back to our old way of living? Tell you what, we're Jewish, so we've got half of it. Why don't we go back to the synagogue and we can kind of be covert Christians because at least Jewish people in our day aren't being persecuted. You see, whatever else though, these aren't the people who are drunk on life's goodness. There was a a, a bus campaign, we've mentioned this before, a bus campaign in London by the, the Humanist Society a few years ago that just read the poster, the poster read on the side of the bus, there probably isn't a God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Only people who are drunk on life ever think life is just something to be enjoyed. It's like, hey, happy-go-lucky, we're healthy, we're happy, we're wealthy. It's like Dr. Raj from CBBS. As long as we're happy and healthy and we get well soon, everything's fine. For many of you, that's like, what? Dr. Raj from Strictly Come Dancing. But this church here, they're scared and they're struggling. And so the writer points to a crowd of people and says, look to this crowd of believers and get some strength, some encouragement. Parents often worry about their kids growing up and getting into the wrong crowd. Pray for baby Neve that she grows up to get in with the right crowd and doesn't fall on the wrong side of crowds. But the writer says, we want you to get in with this crowd of people. All those names that for the past few weeks we've been looking at and pouring over and considering together as a church. He says, I want you to emulate them and be like them. Which is weird. I don't know if it ever strikes you weird. It's weird to say, guys, you're a, I know things are tough. But just look to these guys and get encouragement. Have you read the list? Most of them die. None of them get what they wanted in life. None of them had a happy life. He's like, go on, just emulate them. I mean, you read it. Over 30 people or situations are mentioned. 12 kind of half received what they were looking for. Many didn't. And at least 10 of them got killed. There's not victorious odds. This isn't the victorious Christian. It reads a little bit like Henry, the, um, the rhyme you read for, to learn Henry VIII's wives. <laughs> I mean, that's what comes to mind as I read it. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And you read this one, and it's like tortured, stoned, and killed. <laughs> Destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Who wants to become a Christian? Come to the front if you want to give your life to Jesus. The Christian life is not a, not a life that promises peace and prosperity. And everyone will understand you and they'll think you're wonderful citizens. And the writer is he's not trying to sell a product to them. He's not promising them fulfillment. Come to Jesus and you'll be happy. I dare say I've told people that before. I believe deep down there's a, there's a joy and a contentment that comes from following Christ that is far greater than anything else on the shelves. But actually, the message isn't, come to Jesus and your life will be sorted. I remember on our honeymoon, we got chatting to uh, the hotel manager. And he said that born-again Christianity was growing in the country. And he said, well, why wouldn't it? Because if you become a born-again Christian, you, you get promised riches. 
And he said he was saying that negatively. It's just wrong. But we sometimes sell it like that. Pray this prayer and all your dreams will come true. You want to live forever? You want a happily ever after to your story? Pray this and it's yours for free. Whereas the chapter in Hebrews says, listen, believers are those who are never at home in the earth. You will always be longing for the next life. You will often be misunderstood. You will often be at odds with the society that you live in. You want a happy life, there is a much better way to live than to live the Christian life. Get a nice house, a nice car, play lots of golf, go on holidays. In other words, be middle class. If you want a happy life, climb the ladder. Just live for the pleasures of the earth. He's not selling them an easy life. That's why he says to them, run with endurance the race that is marked out for you. Your race could involve an untimely death. For some of us, it will. Died, age 17, age 24, age 50. That could be us. Or you could be like the prophet Uriah in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 26, it says this, They took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to the king, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. Want to live for God? Want to be a holy man or a holy woman for God? Could end up with you just being discarded in a rubbish dump somewhere. When Jesus calls a person, he calls them to come and die, to give up the rights on their life, or to run the race marked out for you. Not theirs, but you, your race, your life, he's marked out for you, he's called you to run it. And who knows what will happen when you trust God faithfully. Could end with that. Jesus said, if they treated me this way, imagine how they're going to treat you. Well, the Apostle Paul says, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, the point of Hebrews 11 is this. Nothing ever done for God, no decision ever taken for God with him in mind is ever wasted. That's what he's doing. He's holding up these people and saying, be like them. Not because they're great people, but because they emulate not their lives, but their faith. If you've read the list, very few of them would ever have become pastors in our churches. Not they wouldn't have wanted to, for one thing. But they wouldn't have fit our description. They're scallies. And so we're to keep our eyes fixed on the goal that Jesus has set in front of us. There's a time where um, Jesus is saying some things in the Gospels and his disciples said to him, listen Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to get? And he says in Matthew 19, you have followed me. You will sit on the 12 thrones. You'll judge the tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left his house, his brothers, his sisters, his mother, his father, his children, or his lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit the earth, will inherit life. The application that the writer brings is that see the reward that God offers. Be drawn to it. Don't shy away. Pursue. Run after that goal. Throw off everything else that hinders you or slows you down. And every time you say no to something, he knows about it. Every time you say yes to something that's hard and risky, he's near. Every time you give sacrificially to something, he knows. Every time you refuse promotion for his sake or every time you go for promotion for his sake, 
Every time you pour yourself into another person and are let down or experience rejection, he knows. Every time you give up your time to care for a friend or a relative in his name, he sees, he's near. Every time you speak to someone about Jesus, even though you're scared, even though you're worried what they might say or how they might look at you, he knows, he's close. Every time you risk your reputation for the gospel, he notices, he rewards. Every time you identify, even identify with God's people and call yourself a Christian, he draws near. You see, that's the purpose of Hebrews 11, the crowd there, to tell them, don't quit, keep your eyes on the prize, pursue him. And because that's what he says. He says, let's throw off everything that hinders us and all the sin that so easily entangles us, not because we want to live an aesthetic life and not because it's more virtuous to be poor or isolated. We're not going to live up poles for decades and kind of just pray in the desert somewhere. Throw off all of that, looking to Jesus, he says. Consider Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, endured this cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him. Jesus received what God had promised to him. What goal are we going for in this town, in your life, in your family? What are you running for? What do you want from your life? There's an app for everything apart from this. The Apostle Paul Again, in the book of Philippians, he said, whatever was to my credit, whatever was benefiting me, consider it all rubbish compared to the joy of knowing Jesus. There's nothing better in life than knowing Jesus. And I pray that for us, for me, for you, that we would grasp that, how good he is. How soul-satisfying he is. The forgiveness that he offers, the shame that he removes. It's Jesus. I find this, I find this startling. The early church, they were, they were like these people being harassed and imprisoned and being pursued and being mocked and misunderstood. It said people were scared of the church because of the things that had heard going on around them. And yet it says that the church grew day by day. People were being added to their number. Why would they join that? Because of what Jesus offers us. And that's what the writer to this book makes clear. We've jumped in at chapter 11, which is naughty, I know. It's what churches do sometimes. But for the whole book, he's been making this case. This is what Jesus has done. He goes through a long list of experiences. He says, listen, he's better than angels and visions and mystical ideas. Jesus is better than what Moses offered. Jesus is better than what any priest offers better than what any sacrifice offers Jesus is better he's worth hoping in he's worth giving up everything for and the reason he says this is he builds his arguments and I'll summarize it he says Jesus doesn't just forgive you of your sin he cleanses your conscience as well Jesus's death offers you rest for your soul the things that you're longing for Jesus brings you to God and the chapter has been written to make that point. It isn't for the here and for the now that you're hoping in. It isn't for a happy, healthy and wealthy life now that we're hoping in. God save us from thinking about Christianity like that. Gosh, explains why the church is in so much trouble because we're so focused on now. This is just a moment and it's gone. It's temporary, it's passing, your life is a vapour, a mist, and it's gone and you'll be there. And we'll be taking, in a hundred years time, someone might even show a picture of your epitaph to a church to sober them up. But eternity lasts forever. 
I mean, you're going to die, and in a blink of an eye, you'll wake up, you'll be before God, and you'll, he'll say, well, what did you do? What did you do with the stuff I gave you? Who are you looking to to help you? You're looking to my son, Jesus? You want to be with him? Are you clothed in Christ? Or you want to pay for your sin yourself? And that's why he says, throw off everything that would get in the way of knowing him then. Throw off everything that might slow you down from pursuing him and from getting him. New Year's coming up. It'll tick over. It'll be another year. What are we going to do? Here's to a good one. What are we going to say? My goal for this year is to know him. I, I, follow, um, I follow some like, theology blogs. And every year they like to post the amount of books that they've read that year. Uh, which I always think is a little bit strange. Like, you're just bragging. Like, and, it, and it's a weird thing that it's only in the church that anyone would ever go, wow, look at all those books he's read. <laughs> Most people in the world would be like, you loser. <laughs> go do something else with your time. But they brag. I've read this many books, and last year I read this many. I'm hoping to read this many more. And it, and it struck me. Because I, I mean, I'm one of those people, just so you know, I, I count how many books I read. I just don't post it online. Because um, that, for me, is beyond the pale. Oh, I'm sorry if you do that. <laughs> But it struck me, the goals that we make, what, what do you want from your life? I want to know him more. I want to know Jesus. <laughs> like we, I mentioned about the book of Revelation, there's just those moments of the lamb, the rider, the lion. It's him. That's what you're made for, is to know him. And to be in his people, to be among the church. We get together to pray with saints. And when we pray, he's here. When I close my eyes, or keep them open, when I come in his name and I say, Father, I'm with him. I'm in his presence. What a flipping privilege. And sometimes, saints, it feels like we're trying to wake the dead in us. Going, come on, let's praise him. Let's sing to Jesus. Let's pray to God. Oh, God, help us. Have we not grasped the privilege on offer to us? He's here. He's with you. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. And when, if, you don't, if you're not aware of his presence with you, just be part of a church. Because every, every Christian sitting around you is an expression of his body. His physical, tangible, touchable body on earth is here. So when you pray together, he's with you. That's what we do. So if you're going to set any kind of goal, set this goal. I want to know him more. How are you going to measure that? That's up to you. But I want, you to, I want him. I want to know him more. And so, I mean, I, I have started doing this, trying to measure it, because I thought, it's silly that I'm counting the amount of books I read. So I've just, this past year, I've tried to make a note every time I've done, a, I have a, a, a track by my house, and when I walk it and pray, I know how long it takes, and so I measure it. Okay, I've done one this year, I've done two this year, and I've written it down. It's not that impressive, I'm not saying it to impress you. It's a small number, but I've written it down to say, next year I'm going to do more, because I want to know him more. How else am I going to measure it? How else are we going to throw off everything that entangles us? I mean... Many of you like Formula One and, and, and competitive cycling. And you know the lengths and the efforts they go to to get, get rid of as much excess weight as they can to make these things go as fast as they can. For what? At the end of the year, so that their name appears on a trophy, and then in the next year they go, right, let's do it again. We're running for an eternal prize to pursue him, to know him, to have him living among us, to build his church on earth, to be his people, to be expressions of his life in the community. When you go to work, Jesus is going to work because you're a witness to the resurrection. You have the life of the age to come in you. You're, a, you're connected to the true vine, Jesus. I don't think you, we realize how significant we are. 
because you're a carrier of God. So you get to know him, you get to introduce people to him. The, um, the cricketer, C.T. Studd, gave up everything to be a missionary and he, said, he wrote a poem. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. Jesus, we want to know you more. Lord, we don't come to church to sing songs and put on a show. We don't come to sit and listen to a talk. We come to know you. Jesus, I know there's people sat here who don't know you. I want them to come to know you. Their life's a vapor and it will be gone. I want my life to count for something. And I don't want to measure it in terms of accomplishments and achievements and accolades. I want to measure it in terms of, do I, did I know him? And I want that for us, Lord. Help us as your church. Father, God willing, we'll, we'll be in a building soon. whoop de do. It doesn't mean anything. We just want to declare the gospel message and tell people about a God who loves them. And announce the news that Jesus has come to forgive us. Not just forgive us of our sin, but to cleanse our conscience. God, help us. It's against that, Lord, that cloud of witnesses. We want to run. We want to throw off everything that entangles us. The sin that so easily hinders us. Help us shed any excess habits and things in our lives that get in the way of knowing you. God, I know when I stand up here, I I speak words and I, I try to convey some truth, but only your spirit can make any of this land and connect. I'm not asking for people to do anything differently in terms of to benefit me or the church, Lord. It's not about... Trusting you that we might have more money for some chairs. I don't care about chairs, Lord. I don't care about buildings. I don't care. We just want to know you, Jesus. And I ask that you would present yourself here, that we'd say, I know Jesus, I met him today. I grasped something. Sober us up, God. Help us not just be so fixated with competitions and sports and entertainment and apps and TV shows that we we lose who we're here for.